police work to me, it might not be to some others, isn't just about putting bad guys in jail. You know, the mentoring, the, the knowing who the, the bad guys and good guys are and being able to go tell bad guy's mom, hey, he did this, you need to get a hold of him. And being able to talk to the parents, we'd get paged and beeped and, and we'd go to someone's house and they'd say, hey, Johnny's acting up again. And we'd go sit in his bedroom and talk to him. And that would prevent, hopefully down the road, and I think it did, but prevent him from turning to the dark side. As I'm trying to open the door, I hear one gunshot. And I don't know where it came from, but I knew it was a gunshot. But I immediately turned to worrying about KJ. And I was able to see that he was slowly backing up to the back of the Suburban. And his words were, he almost shot you. And I didn't see the gun, but apparently the uh, suspect had raised the gun across the female sitting in the passenger seat and was pointing it directly out the window at me. I saw that KJ had shot him once in the back of the head. I'm like, he saved my life. And I still, to this day, think he's my guardian angel. We've got to go get his wife and daughter. And they said, you know her, go get her, take her to the hospital, but just tell her that he got hurt. Do not tell her what happened. So I'm driving to the hospital, but I am driving her knowing that she's a widow. And it wasn't until she got into the hospital that the chief came in and told her what happened. I thought she was going to hate me for, for not telling her, but we're still close friends today. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back, ATO listeners. Today we're sitting down with a 30-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department. He was born in Orange, Texas, former bat boy for the Houston Astros, assistant equipment manager for the Houston Rockets. He joined DPD in 1991. He's known as a project guy. The evidence of his deep involvement in creating the department's interactive community police unit, now known as neighborhood patrol officers, and his passion for service and giving back is also evident with his tireless, passionate work with the Dallas Police Association the Assist the Officer Foundation, and as the chairman of the Kevin James Endowment Fund. He is the longest sitting board member of the Dallas Police Association. He's now a longtime property crime detective with Northwest Division. And I have to say from experience of witnessing that unit's case filing, he's the best. Sorry, Dante Cunningham. He's a husband for 32 years, father to two incredible kids. He is Kevin Jancy, badge 6679. Detective, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. All right, you ready to dive into this? 
I am. But let me first say thank you all for this avenue to get officers stories out. I was thinking about it. I was listening to most of the other podcasts and I'm like, there's some incredible officers on this department, but only other officers know their stories. And I mean, we as officers know who the badasses are on the department, the Misty Van Curens, the yeah. Ed Lujans and stuff, but the citizens don't know anything about it. So this podcast, what a great hats off to you all for coming up with this. Man, thank you. That, that means a lot. Seriously. I wasn't expecting it's, you to well, throw that at me. incredible. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, that... There's a lot of history in Dallas PD and a lot of, like you said, badasses in Dallas PD through its history. And we want to give, keep, have a stage for that. And also any other first responder that in the city of Dallas and outside, outside the city. Because there's a lot of people who do great things that go unrecognized. Yeah, the and, citizens don't know about it. No. And a lot of officers don't know what they did. I've actually heard from some chiefs that listen to the podcast and they've heard about they've heard some other officers on here and they said you know i really didn't like that guy until i heard a story and now oh, wow. i understand him better yeah i understand her yeah. better it's a great avenue thank well, you the great thing about it too we've barely scratched the surface there's a lot more stories out there to get told that we have nothing but tons of content so that's, oh, yeah. a, good, that's a great thing definitely yeah we're never short of have a shortage of, <laughs> of uh, guests no doubt on. no doubt all right you were born in houston texas that is correct. In 1966, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mention your age. Well, I but, can okay. do the math. Not right. everyone. The yeah. cops. <laughs> True. <laughs> you had Houston ties. What? Why did you settle on Dallas PD? Well, that's a great question. I didn't have any intention on being in law enforcement. Um, never crossed my mind. My career was set in Houston in the sports industries. I was a bat boy for the Astros, a ball boy for the Rockets, and the Houston Rockets said, "You've got a career." Back here with us, go get four years experience, get a four-year college degree, come back, and, and you've got a job working with us. So I went off to college and became friends with a couple of San Marcos police officers, and it fascinated me. You know, they were cool. They were stern. But then when they were off duty, they'd go out drinking with us. And, and of course. I was like, growing up, you, you stayed away from cops. You didn't talk to them. You know, they're, they're the authority figure, and you— you almost don't even look them in the eye. But once I got to know these two officers, I'm like, that's interesting. I might want to look into the career in law enforcement. So I, I applied with Houston, Dallas, and Austin. Houston called, said, hey, come in for an interview. Went in for an interview. They said, just got to ask you a few questions. Have you ever done drugs? I'm like, well, I smoked marijuana once a long time ago. And they're like, oh, we, don't, though, right? we don't want you. So Dallas called next. They came I came in for an interview. Have you ever done drugs? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> Nancy Reagan said, right. say no to drugs. So I, uh, I almost vomited when yeah. you asked me that. So disgusted. This was uh, really the first department that accepted me. And uh, I was going to get, I was going to go into the DEA, but I just haven't gotten a chance to get over there after 31 years. Yeah. That may have, that shit may have just <laughs> yeah. settled Too a little old bit. Now. Yeah. Uh, what was your perception of Dallas PD? and city of dallas whenever you applied i had never been to dallas really so it was being from houston houston's big yeah but for some reason the dallas skyline just fascinated me the the reunion tower the ball it was it was like i can i can live in this city it was did it you was watch the show dallas don't didn't watch that really? didn't watch that haven't even been to that farm what is it south fork south, south ranch fork. it's at you, you seriously you need to go it's actually pretty that's cool. what i hear yeah it's neat um, other than just hanging out with some 
cops in San Marcos and going out drinking and and seeing there's another side of law enforcement as opposed to being authority figures. What what made you go from journalism or broadcasting sports world to wanting to become an officer? I thought it was fascinating. Like yeah. I, I really didn't know the different aspects of police work. I thought it was just you get in a police car, you drive around, you put people in jail. I didn't know that you could actually be normal, help people, people respect you. Um, I, I was just fascinating, the different things. And knowing that you could do almost anything, you could ride a bike, you could ride a horse, a motorcycle, fly a helicopter, whatever you had your mind set on, there was unlimited opportunities in the department. Especially and in a big city. I, yeah, and I wanted to, I wanted to try them all out. Now, grant you, I didn't fly a helicopter or ride a horse or motorcycle, but, you know, I did the community policing thing. I did patrol. I did public information. I did bikes. So I've, I've done a lot in my 31 years, and it's, it's still fascinating. I really and truly, and a lot of people don't believe me, but I really and truly love coming to work still. What was your favorite? Probably the community policing, because we... I think it was in 93, it started. It was called ICP back then, Interactive Community Policing. And they basically took two officers from every station, sent them to Northwest and said, you two officers are assigned to this sector. Take care of it. Handle it. Do what you want. If you need to go undercover, if you need to ride bikes, if you need to, you, you know, you're not, you don't go to details, you don't do anything, but you take care of that neighborhood. And and I was assigned with three good officers all named kevin in fact so it was kevin and kevin in the north park love field area for years and years and uh i think working with the other kevins and being known out there as kevin and kevin in in the thicket was i guess you got to call it love field now but the elm thicket uh that was that was cool i know we don't want to get off into this but you can briefly what went away from what y'all were doing back then to now it's it's changed it's more community meetings and actually i think they handle it's it's called npo now i think neighborhood police officers i think they address uh code issues more um a lot of meetings i see them now i mean they're constantly going to meetings and and we did that too but if we weren't doing that it was boots on the ground you know i remember on 9-11 me and my partner were sitting in a tow truck in the alley of Kenwell because we just found a meth lab at three in the morning. So we were there all morning, all night. And, and I remember listening to it on the radio and it was, it was eerie, but, uh, you know, we had unlimited freedom. We were on bikes that night and we just happened to catch a guy in a meth lab in his garage. And that's uh, something I'll definitely never forget. Yeah. I don't think that running up uh, shutting down meth labs are, part of what MPOs do now. No, not at all. We're always hearing about community policing for years now. You kind of got got into it on the ground floor. I mean, right? Yeah, we we were the original interactive community police officers. What was that like? I mean, what was it like as far as what was the what was the mission when it started? And Randy just touched on it what it is now. Yeah. When it started, what was the mission of that of that program? I really think the mission was the chief shouldn't have to hear from the citizens in that neighborhood. They, they should be able to go to you for complaints, for issues, and you should be able to address them any way you, you know how or you need to. You know, if the chief never hears from the crime watch chair, that's a good thing because you're, you're doing your job. And uh, 
I was lucky enough to have my first partner in community policing be Kevin Scahill. And if you don't know Kevin Scahill, go to the property room and introduce yourself, meet him. He is a life-changing human being with the situation that he was in and getting injured. But he taught me so much and he was a true community police officer as far as how he got along with the good guys and the bad guys. I mean, he, he was real respected, still is. And uh, I think that helped me and that made formed my career in community policing. Why do you believe it's great for a department to have that type of police model? I mean, we, the old days of the Mayberry, right? right? right. It, you, it's hard to do in a city this size. Right. Right. I and mean, there's so many different pockets of the city uh, of this size. And like Houston is uh, is enormous to actually have beat officers anymore because mm-hmm. we're so call driven. Right. Um, when it comes to community policing, I, Misty had talked about it before that it, there's so many people. There's so many different perceptions of what community policing is some people go out and see officers playing basketball with somebody or attending meetings or or getting tiktok videos right you know as opposed to and they think that's not police work but it is i mean the the mentoring of young kids and that's you know police work to me it might not be to some others isn't just about putting bad guys in jail you know the mentoring the the knowing who the the bad guys and good guys are and being able to go tell bad guy's mom hey he did this you need to get a hold of him and being able to talk to the parents um and then talk to you you know we we back then we had pagers and beepers didn't even have cell phones back then but the uh we'd get paged and beeped and and we'd go to someone's house and they'd say hey johnny's acting up again and we'd go sit in his bedroom and talk to him and that would prevent hopefully down the road and i think it did but prevent him from turning to the dark side so you guys essentially kind of started community policing in Dallas, and it was kind of new at the time that you guys started. What's it like building an entire model or starting an entire model from scratch and not have any real guidance on that? Yeah, I think back then we didn't know that what was going to happen. It was a trial. They, they said, you know, go to Northwest. Let's see if this, this model of policing works. Obviously it works because it's still in effect today, but – Looking back, I'm kind of proud that I was on the ground floor and got it started. Um, it was it was it was a blast. It was probably one of the best parts of me being on the department. What's new? It's something new and it's untouched and and yeah, it's yeah. needed. It's really needed because you form relationships with the citizens that you can get really good information from because they're the ones that are living in the cities getting terrorized by yeah. certain people daily, right? They live out there. We don't. We're out there eight, 10 hours a day. Have you noticed a shift or did you notice a shift in the community, the interaction with the community and the trust with the community since you started that? Absolutely. I mean, when I was in patrol, you didn't, you only knew complainants or victims. You didn't know the crime watch people, the people that block captains. And if you did know them, you didn't have their phone number. They didn't have your phone number, but to, to be able to call on these people, I mean, they're like our, they're like our help out there or they were, you know, call a block captain say, Hey, Johnny's doing this and this, keep me up to date when he, when he comes back. Or, you know, I remember getting calls from moms and dads and they'd say, hey, Cortelia just got out of jail. 
So be ready. He's going to probably be acting up again. If mom hadn't called me and told me that, I probably wouldn't have known he was out of jail. So, you know, he was back on my radar. So I, just that, that partnership with the community, it was, it was special. Do you believe we, as a Dallas Police Department, we do a good job of bridging divides with communities? I, absolutely. I think, okay. we, I think we have since ICP or NPO started. And it's only going to get better. It, yeah, especially with uh, the use of social media, prom- promoting promoting that because everybody's on social media these days. That's a whole new aspect it, in it law is. enforcement. It is. Well, even like it, us going to body-worn cameras, I mean, that's a whole new aspect of policing. Yeah. And then social media and, and uh, distributing uh, information out to the public and also other departments across the country because I guarantee you there's a lot of people that look at us and they pick things just like we look at other departments and we, that we pick some of their ideas and make them their own, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see, you know, what other departments – took aspects of our community policing and implemented it in their departments. I'm sure there's numerous ones. Oh yeah. I'm sure they won't. They, someone wouldn't admit it, but yeah. Yeah. No, we, we thought of this ourselves. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm going to fast forward to an incident from in two, January, 2001. You're with your partner at the time, KJ. At that time it was okay. Kevin James. So okay. Kevin Scahill was gone. My next one was Kevin James. Yes. In this incident, you, you almost lost your life. Absolutely. Without a doubt, that's when I knew, and it sounds dorky, I knew KJ was my guardian angel that day. Just just to paint the, a picture for the listener, would you just describe what the hell happened Absolutely. on that whole thing? Yeah. I mean, be descriptive as possible. Community I, policing at yeah. its finest. Okay. We're, we're in a squad car. He's driving. I'm the passenger. We pull up to the A-plus liquor store at Lemon and Mockingbird and notice an individual, one of the bad guys who we had dealt with in the past, um, he was backed into a parking spot and there were people up at his window. We, we knew he was a drug dealer. So we got out of the car and he put it in drive and the chase was on. And we, he obviously didn't know his way around anywhere, but that neighborhood, cause he just kept circling in the area for probably a 10 minute chase back when we could chase for no reason, <laughs> speed alone, the good old days. Um, but he ended up wrecking out back at the almost at the same location we saw him at. He uh, he had a female passenger in the car, and we pull up to the side of the suburban, and KJ gets out and runs around the back of the suburban to the driver's side door, and I'm running to the front passenger door where the female is screaming. I can't see in; I can hear her screaming because the airbags had deployed. And there's dust everywhere, and the horn was honking. So I can't hear anything or see anything. And as I'm trying to open the door, I hear one gunshot. And I don't know where it came from, but I knew it was a gunshot. I've, I've heard them before. And I wanted to know, I mean, obviously I didn't shoot and I wasn't shot, but I immediately turned to worrying about KJ. And I literally laid on the ground to see if he was standing up or if he was, had fallen down. And I was able to see that he was slowly backing up to the back of the Suburban. So I ran around the Suburban and grabbed him by the vest and pulled him to the back of the Suburban. And his words were, he almost shot you. And I didn't see the gun, but apparently the uh, suspect had raised the gun across the female sitting in the passenger seat and was pointing it directly out the window at me. 
And so me and KJ both looked in the car and he was slumped over. The female by then had jumped in the back seat, but I saw that KJ had shot him once in the back of the head and we looked at each other and I just went, cool. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And like I said, at that point, I'm like, he saved my life. And I still to this day think he's my guardian angel. So Kevin looks at you and says, that guy almost killed you. Is there a point at that moment or three days later or three weeks later that it hits you? Shit, I almost died. I think it was driving home. You know, after the shooting, it's not like a police shooting now. We were wrapped up pretty much in a matter of hours, you know, and then it was see you tomorrow. And, and you know, driving home by myself, just reliving that, you know, there's a good chance without KJ, I'm not driving home. I'm dead. And uh, so those words, yeah, those words, I would almost say haunt me. But uh, how did coming it, from him, it was, once again, my angel. How did it impact you when you when you realized that? Yeah, I, I did not see the gun. Um, I don't know what I would have done if I saw the gun. But, uh, you know, him describing it to me while we're standing in the back of the Suburban looking through the back window, you know, him describing that he, he pulled the gun and he put it across the girl and was pointing it at you and he, he was about to shoot you. It's almost like he was reliving it, but he wanted me to to know what, what just took place. And I, I, I don't, don't forget that ever. It's interesting in those situations, you're talking about how the horn's going off because like, it's loud. You can't hear anything. The dust is in the air because the airbags have gone off. You can't see anything. It's interesting how many of our critical events or how many situations like that, your senses are so blocked just by what's going on. And even when we have 12 sirens going off because squad cars are showing up and they don't cut off, you just can't, you can't hear anything. Right. And so you're dependent on your partner and what they see and what they know because you only know this little bit and they see the other portion of it yeah and and what's different now is of course body camera dash camera you know you can go back and and relive it i couldn't Mm -hmm. we didn't have cameras i had to i had to listen to kj describe it to me not just when it happened but we talked for weeks about it just minor little details like i forgot to tell him that i laid down on the ground to see if he was standing up or if he had been shot and he's like, you looked under the car? I go, yeah, because I, I wasn't going to run in front of the car or behind the car. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't see anything, hear anything. So, you know, I slowly started remembering stuff, and, and he would remember stuff. And, you know, we talked about it for weeks. It doesn't come back into, to you till later. No. So. Spooky. Did you tell your wife? Yes. What did you tell her? That I, I called KJ my angel, and she goes, why? I said, because he saved my life. A guy almost shot me. And she didn't like it. Of course, the old get out of police work, and she, she's gotten over it now. It was uh, tough. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, my kids were too young. They they didn't know, so. But I, I talk to them all the time about it. So, Do you hear your kids about it? Yeah, yeah. They're grown now and pains in the butt. Did that change your relationship with him at all, how you saw him or how you felt? I mean, he was still my best friend, you know, and, uh, but I looked up to him more almost as a, as a hero, as a, as a, I would say hero. I mean, cause he, 
he saved my life and you know that's what heroes do so there's nothing bigger than that nope not at all you know in that situation he did he was justified and did what he had to do to take care of you how do you think him killing that guy affected him mentally do you know did y'all ever talk about that how we we talked about it a little but not near enough um once again it's that macho cop mentality i'm sure it affected him a lot more than me um because he did he took a, a human life and that's never anyone's goal but i would hope he was proud that he saved me you know because i was sure proud of him but you know if if he sought counseling or anything like that he didn't tell me but uh yeah it, it affected him we like i said we we talked about it for days and days afterwards well it sounds like you were his counselor Right? Yeah, I mean, really. I mean, it's, we were it, sounding boards for each other. Yeah, yeah. I think what most good partners are, they're going to tell each other stories and yeah. talk about things that normally they wouldn't share with other people. So, right, it's true. But you know, you you're talking about it being tough with the with the spouse, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that's talked about enough as far as officers going home and minimizing their role and what they just went through right right they don't, they don't want to tell me yeah you know kind of minimize it yeah it was bad and yeah you know they don't want to really tell how bad because they also don't want to hear the get out of law enforcement yeah get you know you need to ch- you need to find you need to get off the streets you know I've, my um my old partner he was involved in two shootings and within a year and basically his wife you, you're getting off the streets this is this is it you're done and so he had to he, to make everything happen you know everything home life uh to keep that intact he had to make decision to leave the streets yeah that, that's that happens a lot yeah yeah you you don't want to you don't want to instill fear in them so you, you minimize you know what happened and how close you you know you came to dying and getting shot and you know what they don't know won't hurt them and happy wife happy life so yeah what was the you said that the investigations back then were six hours? Oh, What's that like? What's that process? It Sergeant was, Joe D. Court. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it was all right. Come down to headquarters, get a new gun, write your statement. It's over. Oh, PES, they'll come out and take take some pictures. But it was literally six hours, and we're heading home and see you tomorrow. I mean, there was no ten day, you know, mandatory time off or anything like that it was as justified as could be the guns right there and you know it uh a lot quicker than it is now that's for sure it wasn't second guessed or questioned like no, it might be now none of that yeah. none at all not like unfortunately not like it is today where as soon as an officer pulls the trigger he's like oh god what did i do wrong you know now i got to start thinking did i do this right did i do this right kj saw a guy with a gun that was about to shoot me and he ended the threat well, that's what you're, we're trained to do, and that's what we're we're supposed to do. Right. Did this situation change the way you approached your job at all, or did you learn anything from it, either tactically or um, emotionally, how you go into the job? Or I it slowed me way down because we ran up to the car, and you know I'm standing at the window trying to pull the door open. I wouldn't do that again, that's for sure. I mean, there are tactical things that I did wrong that we might have done wrong. Um, so, yeah, it was a learning learning experience, experiment. But I've, I've also slowed way down, you know. I, I was 
still on the streets. I mean, we went back to doing the community policing thing, and, and nothing changed from the aspect of that, putting the bad guys in jail and taking care of problems. It, it just it slowed us way down and, and showed us how thankful we were to, to have each other. That's what we're taught in the, that's what they're taught in the academy now when I came through is slowing down and not rushing up to the threat and whatnot. I think that it's situations like that that probably we learn and hopefully save some lives. It would be real interesting to go back through an academy now as opposed to 30 years ago and see the difference because technology, number one, but, but just the, the advancement in safety, law enforcement, safety in general on, on how to keep officers as safe as possible, I'm sure is tons better. Well, yeah, pretty much every new policy and every new tactic is uh, came from a tragedy, right? Yeah, and then, yes. And then, and then they, uh, they dissect it, and then they learn from that, and then they apply new tactics and policies and procedures because of a tragedy. And that, that needs to be – the officers need to know that because nowadays you have these young gung-ho officers that – why are they making this now? We can't do this. Well, we can't do that now because this happened. You know, we're doing it for your safety. And I was just the same way when they, you know, we can't chase now. We can't do this and that. They started slowly taking away our ability to, to do police work. But you're right. It's for our safety. And it's, you know, officers need to know that. Well, if it wasn't for KJ, this would have been tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. You ever think about this when you go back through Mockingbird and Lemon? I'm through there just about every day. Just about every day. I, I go eat lunch in that area, and uh, I can relive it. I know exactly where he was parked. That A1's still there. I can tell you the parking spot he was backed into, and I can almost tell you the whole route we took, you know, mm-hmm. to get to the ending point and where where we parked. And, yeah, I mean, that's, it's still fresh in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, every officer has a life-changing event, something that changes them personally and professionally and, you know, directs them to have a new why in their mm-hmm. in their life and in career. I want, I want the listeners to really understand just how shitty and tragic this job can be and how it can just turn on a dime. In November of 2001... Uh, Officer Kevin James was shot and killed at Club BMX while trying to break up a fight. The suspect was wanted for murder, and while Kevin and his partner were breaking up a fight, a gun battle ensued. More than a dozen shots were fired. Officer James was shot and killed. KJ was a newlywed and left behind an eight-year-old daughter. It's, It's the worst day of my life. You know, I got a, I got a call at like four in the morning from Eddie Crawford. And when you get a call from a coworker at four in the morning in this line of business, it's not good. And all Eddie did was let out a sigh. And I said, who? He said, KJ. That's all he said. So I came into work and dealt with the worst day of my life. We were we were talking uh, a little bit before we started recording about the you know the it was the worst day of your life and it probably always will be mm-hmm. that you you described something that you did that night that uh, that was the the absolute worst yeah. part of the worst 
part of your life. Yeah, they. Uh, I got I got to the station, the Northwest Station, and a sergeant I don't remember who said, "Well, we've got to go get Lori and Shelby, his wife and daughter." And they said, "You know her. Go get her. Take her to the hospital." But just tell her that he got hurt. Do not tell her what happened. So I'm driving to the hospital. She's in a you know, fairly good mood. I mean, her husband got hurt. But I am driving her knowing that she's a widow. And it wasn't until she got into the hospital that the chief came in and told her what happened. I thought she was going to hate me forever, you know, for not telling her. But we're still close friends today. Good. Oh, I was going to ask how she dealt with that, or how did you even keep that poker face driving the whole time and not? I probably didn't hear a word she said. I was thinking, number one, don't start crying. Um, don't mess up and say something like, you know, we're going to miss him or anything like that. So we were talking, but I don't know what I said, and I sure don't know what she said. But, yeah, it was seemed like a four-hour drive to go the 20, 25 minutes. Have you guys talked about that since then? No, we haven't. We yeah. we talk all the time, but not about that drive. I don't think we ever talked about it. I think she just knows that I couldn't do it. I was told by a superior to not say anything. So that's a that's interesting. It must be really hard sitting there and then knowing that, but you don't have the chance to communicate about it I or talk to about ask it later. Her about that. Yeah, see how she feels see if about she had it. any any anger towards me. That's did a great you, question. How did you deal with the aftermath? I was numb. I mean, my family was a great support. You know, they they knew KJ. So just got to it. I mean, I don't there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him. I'm still dealing with it. So and everyone deals with it in their own way and I I like to deal with it by keeping his name alive. Did you take time off work after no, that? No. You just came straight back? Yeah. Was it was it hard coming back? I actually felt comfortable in the neighborhood because of all the support. And that, that gets back to community policing. Even the bad guys were like, that sucked. You know, even though we hate y'all, Kevin and Kevin, because you put us in jail, but it shouldn't have ended like that. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I came right back. Did you find that working with the people that you've been working with and who also knew him, was was that helpful for huge. you coming back and being able to do that? Yeah, huge support, huge support. And something that a lot of people don't talk about or might not know that Licho Escamilla, the guy that shot and killed Kevin, he ran down the street and was ultimately apprehended by Lance Crawford and Mark King. They didn't know KJ was shot dead in the parking lot. If so, you know, what what would have happened down there? They shot Leecho, didn't kill him. But what would have happened if they got word, hey, he just killed KJ? Mm-hmm. You know, and I've I've asked Lance that, and he, he says he doesn't know. They could have changed everything. Yeah, the human emotion takes over. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. um, I need, I actually want to get Lance on here. Would be a great person. He'd be a good. Yeah, he's got some yes. good stuff. So Lance, if, uh, I know you're going to listen to this. Uh, Come get on, your, get your ass up here and yeah. sit down. Absolutely, um, Lance and Egg. You you want to? Yeah, Eggleston. Yeah, yeah. You want to? And and we doing this. We doing this podcast. We want to keep names alive. We want it to be just just 
more than just a portrait, mm-hmm. right? Or right. a an event like a clay shoot, which we're going to talk about. Right. We want we want the listener and even even other younger officers to know the person that's I, behind that portrait. Okay. Can you describe Kevin as a partner and as a friend? What he meant to you? Yeah, I mean, he and I think everyone will agree he was never in a bad mood. Always had a smile on his face. Would give you the shirt off of his back. Um, funny, just hilarious. That's what I heard about um, his humor. We were at our lake house at Lakeway, and we went over to a bar, Froggy something, Senior Frogs or something, and it was packed. So I go, KJ, go get some seats, and I'll I'll grab a couple beers. And I go to look for him, and he's at the judges' table scoring a Miss Hawaiian Tropic contest. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, they were empty. So they didn't know we weren't judges, so we're sitting there judging a Hawaiian Tropic contest. Uh, he, awesome. he was quirky, and he just uh, a great all-around guy and great all-around officer. You know, he he was one of the best I've worked with. Yes, he was Kevin James badge. Seven one five four. Yep. How does this affect you moving forward? And what I want to get into the uh, the endowment fund and also the clay shoot that we or annual clay shoot that we have every year. Yeah. Um, how did that process get going of starting the endowment fund and then also uh, morphed into the clay shoot for the the fundraising? Sure, sure. Well, I, I can't take credit for coming up with the Kevin James Endowment Fund idea. That's Tom Popkin and who I think y'all have had on and Eddie Crawford. They KJ was the only sitting board of director to be killed in the line of duty for the Dallas Police Association. They wanted to keep his name alive just like they wanted to keep Bill Carolla's name alive with the golf tournament and they wanted it they came up with the endowment and I didn't know what an endowment was. And I, I did my research, and, and it's a great idea because it's going to go forever. And when people donate to an endowment, I'm sure most people know, when you donate to an endowment, your money is not spent. It's just the interest that the endowment makes. We we give money to assist the officer foundation. So I like to sell it as, you know, you're donating to police officers hundreds of years from now by by donating to the endowment but you know that's going to keep his name alive just because his name's on the endowment can you describe the clay shoot yeah we uh kevin campbell wanted to have a clay shoot and he was looking for help and i said you know what i don't shoot clays but i would love to help if we can name it the kevin james clay shoot benefiting assist the officer he said, works for me. I didn't have a name for it anyway. So, uh, you know, the, the clay shoot was the brainchild of Kevin Campbell. And with the help of the DPA staff and, and a great board, we've had a lot of great success with the clay shoot. And, uh, in fact, the other next one's coming up in a couple of weeks. How does Kevin James feel, do you think, that he would feel about having a clay shoot in his name? I think he's got his chest puffed out going, damn right, that's my clay shoot. Yeah. You know, my name's all over that. You know, he's He wouldn't be the shy type to go, oh, don't do that for me. He'd go, hell no, I want to be remembered. You <laughs> Make know? it bigger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hold it twice a year, damn it. Why is that banner so small? Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he would want it. Does it help you, do you think, like, each year when you come up to the clay shoot, do you feel like 
you're remembering him? Do you feel like it helps you deal with his loss? Yes, I think it 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 helps me. It helps his family. Um, it helps his friends. One of his great friends, John Wagler, um, got involved with ATO after KJ's death, and and is still a good friend of of police work and law enforcement and me. Um, and it helps him. It helps. It helps everyone, but just hearing people talk about Kevin James, I'll never turn someone down if they say, tell me about KJ or what happened. Um, Keep so, him alive. Yeah, yeah. You host the, the clay shoot at what venue? At Elm Fork Shooting Sports. And there's a reason you want to keep it out there, right? Well, it's, it's the division. It's the Northwest Division. Northwest where Division we, where, where we worked. Where you worked and, and, um, and where his end of watch took place. Right. Yes, yes, just down the street. It, it is very important to keep it there. Yes. It, it's a fantastic event. We were out there last year uh, all day. We have it coming up soon, and um, it it I've seen it. It's grown every year. Yes. Right, and we want to keep making it bigger and better and, and just go through the roof. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an all-day event. I mean, breakfast. You get your golf cart and your shells taken care of, and you jump in your cart and you go shoot, and then you come back to lunch, served by the Double Six Cook Team here at the DPA, which do an awesome job. Um, might be some adult beverages after all the guns are put away, and there's there's something at the clay shoot that we've done the past few years, and that's a shotgun golf where you put a golf ball on a big steel plate. And you literally shoot behind the golf ball and try to make it in a hole about 100 yards down. And it's hilarious. And it, it goes. The ball actually gets up in the air and goes. And uh, people are like, what? Shotgun golf? And you blast the crap out of the back of the golf ball. And I grant you the golf ball is destroyed. I don't know how we ever figure out whose is whose. But we have every year, and it's a big, big moneymaker. Or the PGA will take that up. <laughs> somebody will hear that. And Leave it to cops to turn golf into a yeah. shooting game. Yeah. Like yeah, we'll, we'll trick anything up. Well, Olympics has somebody now skiing and shooting at the same time. So yeah. maybe we can incorporate the shooting and playing golf. No doubt. Yeah. I know you talked about wanting to keep his name alive and me being involved here at the DPA for the past too long. I've seen the endowment grow. I've seen the uh, the clay shoot grow. What do you have? What do you think the future holds for the endowment and the clay shoot? And how can our listeners make those things grow and get better to help keep his name going on? The key word there you said was growth. You know, I never want this endowment to be stagnant. It's it's not going anywhere. You know, when they when they wrote the the bylaws or whatever of the endowment, they said this is in perpetuity. This will not fold, dissolve, anything like that. So. But, but growth is the key, you know. I'd love to grow the clay shoot into either two days or double the amount of shooters. I mean, we're, we're packed right now with every, every course or every station full. But uh, just grow, grow the endowment through people knowing KJ, getting the word out about him, about what he stood for, and, uh, you know, my ultimate goal for the endowment would be to have people leave stuff, leave money to the endowment in their wills or their trusts where, I mean, we all know there's plenty of rich people in Dallas, but, you know, when when I pass on, I want to bequeath $500,000 to the endowment. And that's something we used to do, and, you know, we can work on getting back to it is the legacy uh, yep. bricks. And, you know, we still that's something else that we can work on getting – 
you want to describe that what that yeah, yeah. that thought was when we started doing that several years ago right we wanted i mean kj's already left a legacy but we want other officers to be able to leave their legacy on the department and with ato and we had said if an officer donates i believe it was 500 dollars to the endowment they would be a legacy and would be recognized i think we were going to do a brick walkway or something and, and you're right we need to get back to to looking at that because there have been some people that have already donated and and our legacies and uh i mean that's that's huge getting other officers to to want to be able to say yeah i i'm a legacy not only in the department but with the dpa the ato and the endowment Kevin passed almost 20 years ago now. Have you noticed a change in the way? Obviously, there have been several more officers that have passed since then. Have you noticed a change in the way the department handles or, or the officers on the department handled line of duty deaths like that? Well, I think it gets back to social media. I mean, KJ, when KJ passed, there wasn't social media. Um, now they're recognized a whole lot more for their, you know, deaths killed in the line of duty um back when kj died it was basically i mean yeah some news stations did stories about him but there wasn't facebook there wasn't you know all that stuff and so now officers i think are getting recognized more when they are killed in the line of duty due to social media is there anything after that you dealt with after that surprised you and how you dealt with his passing yeah, I mean, the probably the worst part of it all, I, I was I'm probably one of the few people that can say he got to witness an execution in person. Um, Lori had a, she could have bring certain number of people, so she asked me to go watch Leecho be executed. And uh, to tell you the truth, it sucked, because all he did was go to sleep. There was no coughing, no, you know, he went to sleep. And he didn't suffer one bit like KJ did, like his family still suffers, like we still suffer. Um, do I say bring back the electric chair and the firing squad and all that? You're not going to hear me say it, but to, to actually witness an execution where the, he just goes to sleep, was that was upsetting. It wasn't as cathartic as you thought it would be. Not at all. So you don't think Lori or anybody got the closure they probably would have liked from that? That's exactly what I was going to say, the word closure. I don't, I don't think that closed anything. Um, I can't imagine what it's like losing a partner that you, you know, you're so close with every day and and that saves your life. Yeah, and and a best friend. Because you do, you spend so much time with your partner. You spend more time with them than your family in a lot of cases. You're Mm -hmm. spending holidays with them in a lot of cases. Is there anything that you wish you'd done differently to handle his death or that you feel like you would have done better today? for anybody that might experience that in the future probably dealing with his family we uh i didn't have a close contact with his parents um even Lori. i wish we were i wish we talked more i wish we you know hung out and all that but you got to remember the families of officers you know that are killed in the line of duty because they don't know what the police department's doing um, we're getting better at it, you know, communicate. I think we have officers now that strictly handle line of duty deaths and they, they take care of families and it's, it's great. Didn't have that back then. It was 
pretty much me going and taking care of Lori. And uh, I think just taking care of the family of officers killed is, is probably paramount. Yeah, they that program is, is, is pretty incredible. I've, I've witnessed it recently. Mm-hmm. Um, they go out and you because they're, they're in shock losing a loved one. And the police family they're probably more connected to the police family in a lot of ways than than their real family and the family of uh, of the fallen right so they it's nice to see our chaplain service along with our program go out and, and the officers go out and actually hold the widow's hand or the family member's hand through the process of what the proceedings are going to be like and and um and they're, they're, they're constantly calling to check on them after the, after the fact, even after, after the, uh, after the event. Yeah. I, I had a friend that I went to college with whose dad was a police officer in the sixties in Dallas. And my friend called out of the blue and said, Hey, my dad just passed away. Can you tell me if he had any commendations or anything? And I call that unit and they're like, hang on, he's due full honors, full police honors. And the family was like, whoa, he wasn't killed in the line of duty or anything. He just passed away from old age. But the department didn't forget that he served the citizens of Dallas all those years ago and, and were there for him at his funeral. And they did a, a full police. Yes. Yes. Okay. Chief Foy actually talked about that in his episode. The honor, He was over the honor guard when that happened. Okay. And, and he talked about his uh, that funeral Yeah. of them giving full I didn't know you Full could do tribute. that. Yeah, I, I didn't, didn't either. I didn't know that. Well, you know, one of the things, too, that over the years we've grown through unfortunate events, and I think right now something Angela Arredondo is doing uh, through the ATO, they have a spouse's uh, widow's, and I'm sorry that I don't know, what the, can't remember what the name is, but they get together because I think they're trying to fix that. Now, everybody grieves differently, and everyone's going to be different on how they accept how things have happened, but I know that it's something we're continuing to work on and, and grow that, you know, they're here once a month with, you know, past widows from seven, seven and other events trying to figure out what we can do better to help, you know, ease some pain and make things easier. Cause I think you probably could have used a lot more help 20 years ago after that ride that you took to, yeah. you know, maybe with some counseling or words of encouragement and to let you know, everything was normal and okay. Right. Yeah. No, that, that program Angela's doing is great. It's, it's showing the families and the, the widows, they're not forgotten. They're, they're part of our family and, and the family of blue is, is huge and, and they don't need to feel like they're left out. I think it's a, there's a lot of great organizations like that widows and orphans and, you know, anything that just lets them know that we're not going to forget about them. Just like, we're not going to forget about KJ because, yeah. you know, what we're doing for him. You talked about the programs for officers that have passed after after leaving the department. What programs were available for you guys at the time that Kevin James was killed? It was nothing like it is now. I know I'm sure you could have gotten help through the city, but, I mean, there's so many. Back then it was the the – the macho police, you know, deal with it, handle it. Don't show your emotions. Don't talk about it. Yeah. You'll, you'll get over it. And, uh, you know, I, I personally didn't or, or, you know, seek any type of counseling or anything. I'm not sure what the other officers did. Um, is that 
Is that make it real difficult to deal or grieve this loss when you can't talk to each other about it? And in theory, you're thinking that everybody else also has just moved on and is fine and is dealing with everything. And you're the one that's struggling. But in reality, I think pretty much everybody's struggling. We just don't talk about it. Yeah. And that, that gets back to that, you know, I'm a tough cop. You know, I don't, I'm not to show my, not supposed to show my emotions. Um, and it gets to the point even where I don't want to, I don't want anyone to know that I went and got counseling. Um, so, you know, like I said, I personally didn't, you know, go to any counseling. Should I? Probably, you know, um, but, but I didn't maybe, maybe that's, you know, why it still hurts so bad to, to lose KJ. And like I said earlier, I mean, he's my guardian angel and I think about him every day. And, you know, if, if you want to break any locks or codes I have, just put his badge number in because that's, that's my code for everything. Writing that down. Yeah. yeah. I've got it saved. Yeah, okay. Randy, I want you to – I want to tell the listener where to donate to the uh, the endowment fund and if they want to support this great cause. Yeah, something that I know we've been talking about wanting to do better here on the podcast is, you know, remind everybody to go to Dallas, atodallas.org. You can check and see all the support services that we have with uh, the confidential counseling we provide for officers and Dallas officers, and we've grown so much in that. You know, we take care of uh, Dallas firefighters now, and sometimes some outside agencies through special requests, you know, they're able to get counseling services. But something recently we've done to update the website, we have an, an events page that if you go on there and click on events, you can see the clay shoot. It's got details about that. That's going to be going on every year. We got uh, bags for badges. That's going to be coming up in July. There's event details on there, and even the uh, Carry the Load Memorial May campaign to raise money for that. More importantly, talking about the endowment, when you want to go donate, there's tabs on there to where you can specify where you want your donations to go. We need to work on that better, and we want to know if our listeners are hearing about the donation avenues for the first time and you make a donation because of this podcast, let us know in that too. It's just a metric to measure how good a work we're doing yeah, or trying our, to do our reach. Yeah, yeah. Our reach. So, and I know Kevin here is going to like that, you know, especially when he sees donations come in for the, uh, the endowment. We'll send a letter saying thank you and, yeah. you know, recognize you. So atodallas.org. Look at the events page, and then also go check out uh, how to donate, and we want to hear from you, let you know how we're doing. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the the mental health real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, the ATO provides the confidential counseling, and uh, the department's actually has a new peer support slash mental health and wellness program that's, that's going to start up very soon. Mm-hmm. We're, we want to take a more proactive approach to reach out to folks that that have been not necessarily in a critical incident. You don't have to be an officer-involved shooting to have it weigh on you and you carry it around the rest of your life. And then you got other shit that's stacking on you, right? right. And it's just weighing you down. That incident that, that you went through uh, where KJ saved your life, hell, you, you almost died. Yeah, yeah. And then the next in, in the next weeks and months thereafter – you probably saw other things and and uh, and dealt with other issues out in the streets, right? Yeah, it, and you know, it, I guess it was my hard headedness to to not seek help. I mean, I, I knew it was probably out there, 
especially through ATO, dynamic, excellent program, um, counseling program that, uh, that looking back, I probably should have seeked some help. Um, but once again, it's that hard headedness of cops. And, and that's what I worry about with these younger officers. You know, like you said, they don't have to be the officer involved in the shooting, but just if they see something, you know, you deal with children, you know, tragedy, tragedies to children and stuff that that alone might affect an officer. And, uh, we've just got to get it through their head that there's, there's help for them and, uh, they just need to, to reach out and get it. Yeah. Detective Reed sitting here, she, she's in child abuse and, Ooh, you know, yeah. yeah, that, that, that reaction you just gave, that's something yeah, her I unit has it. to deal with. No, Could I, could, I couldn't it. either. Um, and, and one of the things that sits with me, uh, dealt with an infant that happened back in 98. Wow. You know, so the, the new program I think is going to be beneficial because it identifies certain incidents, not critical death responding to a crash, you know, where, where there's a lot of death involved not on, on the freeway, sure. right? Seeing that a few days later, seeing something else, Right. You've been on 30 years. You started programs that are still in place. You were on the ground floor of community policing. Now you've solved it. You're solving crimes left and right up in Northwest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I've seen a lot and done a lot. And uh, when I finally hang it up, I'd like to think I made a difference in the city. Um, like I said, I'm still having a blast doing it. Don't know how much longer I'm going to stay, but. I don't see an end in sight, you know, I'm a couple years at least. So still like it. And I like making a difference. Good. I think you've done that. And I think that you definitely left a footprint on this department at the Northwest division and starting up the, you know, help assist in starting up the endowment fund and participating in the clay shoot and getting that message out there and keeping KJ's name alive. Uh, I believe that's a part of your legacy on, on DPD. And I'd be happy with that. I'd be just fine with that. Keeping KJ's name alive, you know, you know I don't have to keep my name alive, but I sure as hell am going to keep KJ's name alive. Your name will be kept alive. <laughs> Thank you. For good or bad? Yeah, for good. <laughs> okay, thanks. Were you? Are you an Astro fan? Absolutely. So, since you were the Bat Boy and did all that stuff, you know, they won the World Series a couple of years ago, and yeah. how excited you were about that. Um, had you gone into that career, you know, you didn't obviously, do you have any regrets about that? Not a bit, not a bit because how much I've enjoyed this job, you know, people think I'm crazy because the Astrodome was my playground. You know, I worked, I played ball in the Astrodome and at the summit, you know, those were my offices and they're like, you're crazy. That, why would you do that? Why would you go risk your life? I'm like, you just don't understand. You don't understand how rewarding it is to be a cop. I'd, I'd give all that away for what I'm doing now. It's a great job. I enjoy it. I think it's a great way to wrap it up. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you for your time with DPD. Well, thank and you. It's a great, great podcast. I can't wait to listen to all of them. Well, I hate to tell you this, but... We didn't get any of this on the recording. We had to start I screwed over. it all up. So we, we, we had to re- no, Jack, Oh, God. <laughs> I can't sit next to Randy any longer. <laughs> Kevin, thank you for being here. Thank you. Great job. Hey, brother.
sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder together we'll run up from the bottom yeah we'll rise above hey brother hey sister I'll never give up on you hey missus hey I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Never give up